Well, it is good to be with you finally and to have all of my stuff in one place now. <laughs> it's been a pretty nice experience, but it's a pleasure to be with you this morning and to be able to actually say this is the first Sunday officially in Cookville again. And so it's great to be with all of you. December 7th, 1941 is a date that probably some of us are familiar with. It's one that has a lot of historical significance in this country. Specifically, it was the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked, beginning America's involvement in World War II. And if you think about that day and what was taking place, it was a day like any other. People were going about their daily chores. They were going to services on that Sunday. They were doing everything that was just normal to them. And then the world shook. If you look at what was taking place historically at this time, there were even Japanese emissaries in Washington, D.C. talking about a peaceful resolution to what was going on in the Far East. They had come to the United States with these appearances of, we're trying to be nice to you, we're trying to encourage this peaceful resolution, we don't want all this conflict. And America bought it hook, line, and sinker. And as a result... Our base in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii was attacked. And many people lost their lives that day, both service and non-service members. The people of the United States suffered from that as a result of not being aware of who their enemy actually was. They didn't know that Japan had the ability to do that. They did not know that those ships were sailing out on that Sunday morning. They did not know the planes lift off from those decks. As Christians, it's important we know our enemy as well. Because unlike the Japanese empire, our enemy can destroy our souls. Our enemy can destroy all that we see around us. It can destroy churches. So who is this enemy? We just had the scripture reading this morning of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter is warning the church. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He made a very, very specific description of our enemy. I would wager to say that most of us this morning, if a lion walked down this aisle, we would not be sitting in our seats. We'd be finding the nearest exit and we would be Using that age-old proverb, I don't have to be faster than it, I just have to be faster than you. We would get out as quickly as possible because we don't want that around us. We know that that is dangerous. We're not comfortable with that. But how often are we comfortable with our enemies sitting right next to us on a daily basis? We're comfortable often with that enemy and what he is capable of doing, mostly because I don't think we truly grasp who he is. If you go out and ask the general person on the street, oftentimes people don't even believe our enemy exists, much less that he's actually a threat. But we as Christians, we know from the scriptures who this enemy is. So that's what we're going to be discussing this morning and breaking down who is our enemy. We're going to notice several different characteristics of this enemy. First, we're going to notice our enemy is sly. We're going to notice our enemy is skillful. We're going to understand that our enemy is subjugated and that our enemy is sentenced. So those are the four points we're going to discuss this morning. First of all, let's discuss our enemy is sly. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus talking to the Pharisees says, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. When he speaketh the lie, he speaketh of his own, because he is a liar and the father of it. 
He is the father of lies. If God is the ultimate truth and Satan stands against everything that God stands for, it is understandable that he would be the father of lies. God was not the one that could create that. He created the truth. What the devil did and what mankind does to this very day is we take the good that God has created, all the wonderful things in this world, and we twist it to our own destruction. Do we have a better message than this book? But how many people this very morning are twisting what it says? Are changing the message. What God has given us, this wonderful message of hope, of salvation. He is, they are taking this message and they are twisting it to fit what they are comfortable with so that they don't have to change. Or twisting it in such a way they want to hurt those who are against them. All that we have in this world, when God created the world in Genesis chapter 2, He said all was very good. But man and the devil have twisted those things that God created into something that is corrupt, that is wrong. Our enemy is sly. He knows how to get into our heads. The devil doesn't have to try very hard to get people. He's had thousands of years of practice. The very first man and woman were corrupted, were led astray. Genesis chapter 3, they had been given everything they possibly could have wanted. How often have we heard the statement, if I just had X, I would do X? If I just had more money, I would give more. If I just had more time, I would do more. The reality is, if you had more time, you would use the same percentage of what you have now. That's the reality that we live in. But the devil understands that it's not about what you have. Because no matter what you have, you can take it for granted. You can take it for granted. Just look at our world today. America right now is the richest nation probably on the face of this earth per capita. The amount of people that are millionaires in this country is greater than any other. And even the poorest in our nation are still greater than some of the ones in other countries. And not negating the poverty of some and saying that that's a terrible thing, that they should have that, they should just get over it. That's not the point we're making here. The point we're making is that we take it for granted, do we not? Think about all the blessings we had just coming into this building this morning. We have AC, keeping it cooler in here. We have seats to sit on. We have nice clothes to wear. We drove here in cars. We had gas to put in those cars. We had the money to pay for that gas. We had homes we slept in last night. Finally, I had that. We have all these blessings, but how often do we just not think about it? There's a song, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That's the reality. If we don't think about it, if we sit down and take every note, how long would that piece of paper be? We just started writing it down, every single thing, because you know how far we can go. We can be thankful for the molecules that gave us the air that we can breathe so that we can walk and live. That's how far we can go. God gave us all these things, but the devil understands all he has to do is just keep you from thinking about it. Keep you from thinking about all the blessings that God has given you, even the blessing that it is that we can sit here as Christians. Not as people with no hope, but as Christians who have a hope of an eternal life with God. He just has to twist it just a little bit. 
he would not more than likely come at us. If, if the devil looked like the cartoons that we make of the, the demon with the horns and the pointy tail and the pitchfork, how many people just want to sign up to go talk to that? No. Very few of us would want to. Some of us might as an ironic thing, but none of us want to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, excuse me, Paul describes the devil. He says sometimes he presents himself as an angel of light. There was a man on one occasion I heard who said, beware of hollow smiles. Beware of hollow smiles. He says some people come up to you with a smile on their face and there is not an ounce of happiness or joy behind it. Beware of hollow smiles. That's exactly what the devil is in a nutshell, a hollow smile. It looks good on the outside, but what's on the inside? I can't help but think about what Jesus described to the Pharisees. He says, you are whited sepulchers. On the outside, you look great, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. On the outside, they were these religious people that were going about and doing all these wonderful things for the world, but in reality, they were leading the people away from God. And Jesus was calling out that sin. Because sometimes sin seems like the right choice. Sometimes it seems like the good way out. Maybe if I just tell this little, little white lie now, I can, I can just get out of this. It won't be so bad now. I, I can repent for it later. Or maybe I shouldn't tell someone something because that would cause a fight. Be difficult. I don't want to deal with that. Sometimes sin seems like the good way out. And the devil offers it. He says, just take this road. Think about what the devil offered to Jesus in John chapter 4. What he was, or Matthew chapter 4, excuse me, what he was telling him. Bow down and worship me and all this I will give to you. What's he saying? If you bow down and worship me, you don't have to go to the cross. And we know from Jesus sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally sweating drops of blood from the stress and the anguish of what he was about to go through, that was something he wanted to avoid. He didn't want to go to that cross. He did not want to do that. He wanted to do it in the sense he wanted to give us that salvation, but what a horrible way to have to get it. The devil offered him what seemed like a good way out. Think about the first temptation he gave him. Turn this stones to bread. How long had Jesus been without food? 40 days and 40 nights. That's literally the point of starvation, of death by starvation. He says, just take it. You have the power, just do it. Seems like a good way out. See, the devil is sly with his attacks because sin is a pleasurable thing. We talked about this multiple times in James chapter 1, verse 14. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Sin looks good. If it didn't look good, who would do it? Who would do it? If every single part of... Let's imagine this for a moment. Think about every single vice that we have in our country and in our world. If people saw the end result and the end result only, how many would take of it? If every single alcohol commercial was a man throwing up in a toilet, or the decay that it causes to your body, who would do it? But what do they portray? The parties, the fun, the letting loose, the letting go of life stress for a little bit. Sin is a pleasurable thing, and the devil knows it. Because sin offers us something that is temporary. 
up front it looks good. I can take this temporary thing, but the end result is horrible. Later on in that passage, James chapter 1, I believe it's verse 16, it says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God gives perfect gifts in the sense that up front it looks good and at the end it is good. At its core it is a good thing. Sin looks good, is not good. It's an imperfect gift. Because it might help us through individual situations, but what does it cost? He gives a little for nothing in return. That is the result. He understands this. The desirableness of sin is what draws us in. Think about Adam and Eve. When he offered that temptation to them and said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And with that terminology there, that word there literally gives more of an intention of you get to determine good and evil. You don't have to take orders from anybody. If we think Adam and Eve were different than we are today, we're fooling ourselves. They're people. They were people just like you and me. And on top of that, we would think it would be harder for them to sin because they have a direct communication with the Lord. Our communication today comes through the Word of God. Imagine if every single conversation you had was with Him mouth to mouth. But they lost sight. Because our enemy is not just sly, he's skillful. He understands his tactics. He knows he's been harnessing them. He's been utilizing them over and over again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. He describes that the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, those things, those are not going to change. They're the same throughout all of humanity's existence. And why would he change his plan? Why would the devil change his plan if he's been using the same thing and it just keeps working? If we think right now that America is uniquely evil, we're kind of kidding ourselves. Go back and look through history. The Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, some of the Saudi Arabian empires that took place throughout the Middle Ages. All of those different places, they were evil. <laughs> And how they approach things. Look at Assyria. Assyria, the nation that would kill people, leave their bodies on the side of the road so that their bones would bleach in the sun and say, hey, yeah, we're here. And they would take pride in it. Sodom and Gomorrah. The lifestyles those people were living. America is not uniquely evil. Does it have evil? Absolutely. Is America overall structurally evil? It has a lot of problems with it. Because sin is a human thing. And what's this country run by? <laughs> Humans. But our mission doesn't change. And we can't just look at the world around us and say, well, it's just so bad, there's nothing we can do. Paul preached in Corinth. Corinth was just as evil. But sometimes it can seem that way because the devil understands his tactics. He doesn't even just have to take you. He just has to make you think it's hopeless. Just stop trying. It's too hard. It's not worth it. He knows his toolbox. He knows exactly what he's done and how he's been able to accomplish it. And there are so many ways he can do it now. He uses our entertainment. 
the things that we spend our time with. 1 Corinthians 15.33, evil communications corrupt good morals. That's not just about the conversations you have with people. It's what you spend your time with is going to affect you. And if I spend all my time with the things of this world, it's going to be very difficult not to act like the world. He uses our, the distractions that we have, our work, our just daily chores, our things. He uses that to distract us, to draw us away. How many times have you gotten to the end of the day and said, I didn't pick up my Bible today at all. I had so many things going on and I just didn't pick it up. That might seem harmless in the moment, but over time, building and building, that's how he uses it to draw us away. Think about it for a moment. When you graduate from high school or from college, or maybe you leave a summer camp, for the first couple weeks, you are keeping in touch with everybody that you spent that week or that time with. Every single person. How many do you talk to now? Maybe some, but a whole lot fewer, right? The distractions, they get in the way, they draw you away. You don't talk to them quite as much. God is the same way with us. At first, we might be gung-ho for the Lord. Yes, I'm going to take all the time I can give to God. But then, well, I have to go on this trip. Well, I have to take care of this yard work. Well, I have to take care of my job. Well, there's stuff for school. And by the end of it, you look back and you realize I'm farther away from him than I ever thought I would be. The devil understands he doesn't have to make you hate God to leave him. He's very skillful with his tactics. But he also uses our family and our friends. I heard a guy on one occasion say one of the hardest groups of people to convert is your family. It is incredibly difficult. Why? Because they saw you with the dirty diapers. It's hard to take someone seriously when over all that time you've seen all the mistakes they've made. You've seen their bad judgment at times. And it's hard to take that seriously. You think about even Jesus' own family didn't take him seriously for the longest time. If the Lord on earth... <laughs> If his family didn't always listen to him, what makes you think it's going to be super easy for you? It's not going to be easy. And the devil understands that. He wants to use that against you because he knows that that hurts. He knows that it's hard. He knows that it makes those holidays awkward. And he wants to use that to break you down daily. But God has given us a way out. God has given us the tools that we need. We have the ability to face this enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. He gave us all the tools. All the tools to stand against him. Because that characteristic of the devil, we talked about how he's sly. We talked about how he is skillful. But this is where the sermon gets to the good part. He's subjugated. He's subjugated. Now, that might sometimes sound like a mouthful of a word. Literally, it means he's under somebody. He's not the head honcho. He's not the one in charge. He takes orders. We tend to think of Satan sometimes as this unbeatable enemy, this king of hell. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He's just another resident. 
He's just another tenant. <laughs> Better term, inmate. He's just another inmate. We cannot consider him to be this great ruler of this powerful enemy because our king is bigger than him. The one we serve is greater than him. So while he does are those things, and we need to understand the dangers that he poses, we also can understand that the God we serve is greater and that we can stand against this. The reason we have sermons like this, and sometimes it can seem, for lack of a better term, aggravating, to have to listen to the negatives of the scriptures. But we listen to the negatives so that we can appreciate the positives. So that we can understand, yes, God is love. Yes, God is compassion. But if I'm also aware that there are consequences to my actions, I'm not just going to see how far I can push him. I'm going to listen to him, do what he has to say. And that is exactly what the devil is. Satan is on God's leash. Just imagine, just think about a moment for the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Who was calling the shots? <laughs> Who was setting the boundaries for what the devil could do? He had to ask permission to attack Job. Hey, can I, uh, what, what can I do? God says, okay, you can't go farther than this. You can't go farther than this. He just kept setting the standards. Now, does this mean God tempts us? No. No. He gives us free will. He gives us the choice. But no, he's not the one responsible for it. But if God decided to, if God saw that it was right, he could snap his fingers and the devil would no longer be able to do anything. Period. Done. He has the power to do so, but for him to do that, he would have to take away our free will. He would have to take that away from us. In doing so, he also could take away our ability to love him. God has the power over the devil. Ultimately, he has no power over God at all. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he has no power. God is greater. Jesus defeated the power of the devil had, which was the power over death, when he died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead that third day, now he gave us a way of escape. He gave us a way out. We have eternal life through the sacrifice of his son. And God prophesied even this would happen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, the son of woman will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. The idea there is literally a minor flesh wound versus a death blow. A death blow. He was going to literally take everything that he had away. How is it do you consider that we can be Christians, that we can be faithful to God if the devil had power instead of God? Do we just think sometimes that God is just sitting up there watching all this happen and the devil's the only one that can do anything? He's given us his word so that we're aware of the things. We can recognize them. There is a study that is done with CIA, FBI, law enforcement that is called body language reading. Now, the idea behind this is 
you give away more of what you're thinking than you think you do. You do certain things that can give impressions that, okay, he's nervous. Okay, he's happy. Okay, he's comfortable with the way we present ourselves. Now, study's not perfect. It doesn't always work. Sometimes people are just socially anxious and not hiding something. <laughs> but that's the idea they do. They show these different signs of who they are. When it comes to us as Christians, we show who we are. The devil's already shown us who he is. God's already shown us who he is. But the idea behind that body language reading is we read the word of God so that when we look at the world, we recognize signs. We recognize things. Okay, this is, this is kind of like what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians with this corruption that was taking place in the church. Or, oh, this reminds me of James chapter 1 where he was talking about temptation, how it's pleasurable. Or, oh, this reminds me of Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted by the devil and how he wanted these things, but it just wouldn't be right for him to do so. He gives us the toolbox to deal with our problems. But we have to be the one to read it. We have to be the one to study the manual. If we're not willing to take the time to look for those things, to be able to be aware of it, then when we go out into the world, we're going to be completely clueless. We're not going to be prepared to see those things, to stand against those things. Just go look through the book of Proverbs. I told a person on one occasion that I would love to be able to go through the book of Proverbs and not feel like it stepped on my toes. <laughs> he said, good luck. <laughs> so that's the way that it is, though. Proverbs is a great book to help you prepare for these things because he's saying, hey, don't do what I did. Solomon had so many opportunities to do wrong. He could have it like that. Some people have to work their whole life to get to that level of evil. Solomon could snap his fingers and have it right in front of him. He said, I've tried all this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Don't be involved in this. Don't give that power to the devil. Literally, the only power the devil has over us is what we give him. If we say no, there's not a thing he can do about it. He can't grab your hand and force you to sin. All he can do is lay the opportunity in front of you. It's your choice. It's your decision on what you decide to do with it. He is subjugated, but he's also sentenced. He's sentenced. Yes, he is sly. He's skillful with what he does. Yes, he's under the power of God, but he's got a sentence on him. The devil's not just walking around scot-free. He knows what's coming for him. He knows the end result. When Jesus defeated Satan and took away his power, there was a sentence that was passed. The devil was going to suffer in hell with those who reject God. See, when Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus was describing this place. He said, in hell where a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not made with us in mind. It wasn't made because God wants to put people there. It is a place he will use, though. It is a place that people have to go because it's the only place where God is not. And if we're not with him, 1 John chapter 1, if we're walking in darkness, we cannot be in fellowship with the light that is God. 
So as a result of that, we have to be in the one place where he can never be. That separation, that removal. But notice it said it was prepared for the devil and his angels. That was made with Satan in mind. Specifically designed to punish them. Isn't that in some ways a comforting thought? Our greatest enemy has a prison built specifically for him. Specifically for him. And the best part is, we never have to look at it. We don't have to look at it. We never have to lay eyes upon that place. Because Jesus said, hey, I'm going to give you a path. You never have to go there. Jesus has built this place. He's put a fence around it. He's put barbed wire around it. He's put signs on the fence saying, don't go this way. Some people still cut the fence and go, though. Some people decide, even in spite of all the warnings that God has given, in spite of all the messages that he says, hey, go this way, some still decide to ignore the warnings. Some still decide to say, God's not good enough for me. And they decide to go to that place. But he's not the king of that place. He's not the head honcho. He's just another prisoner. In 1941, America was attacked and temporarily defeated because of their own ignorance and because of their lack of preparedness. A week later, we were at war with a nation that did that to us. Four years later, that nation was under our heel. Franklin Roosevelt stood up before Congress to ask for that declaration of war. He said, December 7, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. A day that we're not going to forget. There's monuments to it. You can still go to Pearl Harbor today and see those ships that were sank still at the bottom of that harbor. You see the graves. The suffering that was wrought as a result of that. And for the next four years, we fought a grueling war against that nation. The war we're fighting today is far more important. The war that we fight against our greatest enemy is one that will not end until the day we're in the ground. How are we fighting that war? Do we prepare by doing nothing? Do we just say, well, when the battle comes, I'll be ready? Without once preparing your equipment. Do you just say to yourself that whenever the devil comes, I'll just say no. Not knowing how he's going to come. Not being aware. Will we listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8? Are we going to be sober? Are we going to be vigilant? Or are we going to... Be distracted and asleep. What will our decision be? God has given us all the equipment. He says, please, take what I offer. He's offered the Christian armory, if you will, giving you everything that you could possibly want, offensive and defensive weapons. 
and He gave you His Word. For us to study, to be prepared, so that when the devil does show his face, we're not fooled. But we're ready. And we, like Jesus said, when He faced the devil, it is written. It is written. It is written. This morning, do you know your enemy? Are you prepared to face that enemy? If you've never named the name of Christ, you're completely unarmed. If you've never become a member of the Lord's church, there is no hope against this enemy. But God doesn't want you to be there. He made His plan simple, a way that everyone could come to Him. By hearing the word, Romans 10, 17. So in faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And based upon that hearing, we understand what it says, John 8, 24. I said, therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And based upon that belief, that understanding, that knowledge of what he has said, we're willing to repent of all of our past sins. A changed mind which brings a changed life, Acts 17, 30. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And based upon that repentance, we confess that he is exactly who he said he was. Romans 10, 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And based upon that confession, we will be more than happy to find a place to baptize you. 1 Peter 3, 21, The like figure went to even baptism to also now save us. Burying that old man of sin, raised to walk in newness of life. Raised with preparedness. But that's not the end of the journey. Coming up out of the water is a great first step. But then comes the training and the preparedness and the battle that comes next. But that's why we're all here. We're all here because we're a part of the same unit. A unit of the Lord's army that's prepared, that's fighting this enemy. And when one of us struggles, we support them. When one of us needs more training, we train them. And when one of us is scared, we encourage them. But maybe you named the name of Christ. You became a part of the Lord's army, but maybe you allowed the devil to take too many things. Maybe you allowed too many battles to be lost. Maybe you left too many walls unguarded. We can make it right this very morning. If there's anything in your life that is holding you back. Any shame or guilt that you feel for something that was done wrong, we're here to pray with you and for you. Not to shame and not to point fingers and not to say, oh, look, what, I wonder what they did. But we want to strengthen one another to face this battle because none of us can do it alone. We oftentimes at the end of these sermons just give opportunities to repent if you've done something wrong. But this is also an opportunity to just ask for prayers. I'm struggling. I'm still fighting the good fight, but I'm having a hard time. Prayers can do a lot of good for both sin and for struggles. If you want to make that known this morning so that we can pray with you and for you, make it known. Don't leave here without taking care of everything you can. If you have any need, please come as together we stand as we sing.